Will the FTC take a harder look at franchising? Hello, this is Jonathan Mays, Editor-in-Chief of Restaurant Business, and in this week's episode of A Deeper Dive, I speak with Eric Karp and Keith Miller, who last week petitioned the Federal Trade Commission to ask them to investigate franchising. Karp is a franchise attorney with the law firm of Whitmer, Karp, Warner & Ryan, and among other things, represents franchisees of 7-Eleven. Miller is a Subway franchisee and advocate for stronger franchise oversight. They asked the commission to look at nine franchise companies, including 7-Eleven and Subway, along with Dickie's Barbecue, hotel companies IHG Hotels and Choice Hotels, the UPS Store, Experimax, Supercuts, and Massage Envy. The FTC appears to be gearing up to look more closely at franchise contracts. The petition asked the commission to look at several issues related to the different franchises and their contracts with franchisees. It could open up more heavy federal regulation of the franchise sector for the first time. Carp and Miller discuss this petition, why it's necessary, and we talk about some of the problems that can occur when franchisors take things too far. Please have a listen. Okay, I am here with Eric Carp and Keith Miller. Gentlemen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. Glad to be with you. Good morning. Yep. So, um, uh, gentlemen, I guess Eric, I'll I'll start with you here with this. The first question: Explain this petition and why it's necessary. Well, let me start with the second half first, if I could. Why is it necessary? Over time, what we've seen is a progression of steeply one-sided franchise agreements that are presented to franchisees on a take it or leave it basis. Uh, negotiation is almost always ruled out at the outset. And these franchise agreements have gotten more and more one-sided over time, have reserved greater and greater discretion to the franchisor with no oversight whatsoever. The provisions of the agreement make it impossible for the franchisee to sell what they own because the buyer has to sign the then current agreement. The franchisee also doesn't get to actually extend or renew the current relationship, but has in effect a right of first refusal on a successor franchise agreement. Franchisors have drafted around the most basic legal principles we have in America, including the implied covenant of good faith and fair dealing, and an evenly balanced playing field in the event that there is a dispute between the parties. Essentially, all of the aspects of the American judicial system which have tried to create a fair balance between a plaintiff and a defendant in a case have been erased in these franchise agreements with prohibitions on jury trials, consolidated cases, prohibitions on class actions, prohibitions on multiple damages and punitive damages, shortened statute limitations. In short, trying to make it as difficult, expensive, time-consuming, and daunting for a franchisee to actually bring a case. The second reason is that the FTC, since it first issued the franchise rule in 1979, has never ventured onto the substantive side of the relationship, even though it's done so in other industries over time. And we think it's high time in the context of this rule review for the franchise industry to be examined by the FTC to see whether it's appropriate to regulate the substance of the relationship as many states do. Mm -hmm. Keith, there are nine brands mentioned here. Why these nine? Specific, well, specifically, uh, three of them. Uh, well, one is 7-Eleven, one is Subway, another is Dickies. Uh, there's a couple of hotels in there. There are uh, Experimax. Why these nine brands? Well, I would argue that they all earned it, uh, so to speak. 
I think we got to try to get a good cross section of different businesses in the franchise industry. Obviously, some of the big players in the industry, and quite frankly, some of the players who we've seen quite a few complaints filed with the FTC or comments, as the case may be. When the franchise rule review workshop happened last November, there was a commentary period, and some of those brands listed had a high number of comments. I would actually call them complaints, not comments, to the process that were submitted. So, you know, we tried to again get a cross section of different industries for them to look at, and ones that had have seemingly had more issues. Do we think that the FTC is going to take this? Is he going to do well, anything about it? I think if you look at the comments from what I would call the new FTC, you know, obviously under the Biden administration, the FTC now has the Democratic majority. Uh, naming Lena Khan as the chairwoman was a pretty bold step. She has been very aggressive going after as the press reports, big pharma and big tech. And we've also seen quite a few comments and statements by her pulling in franchising into that uneven power, the, or the power imbalance uh, in contracts that exist in franchising, as Eric described. Mm -hmm. Eric, why hasn't the FTC really done much in terms of actually going after bad franchises or actually regulating this industry more? Why, do, why hasn't it done anything on this? Well, I think one reason is that the franchise industry on the franchisor side is highly organized, highly financed, has a very sophisticated lobbying operation. And the FTC has really not had the resources to take on a well-financed opponent. Uh, in the past, the only franchisors they went after, frankly, were the ones that couldn't afford to defend themselves. So I think that that's been a major, major factor. And, you know, if you look internationally, to Australia and Japan, there are two countries that have taken a look at this issue of, do we need to go over to the relationship side? Do we need to examine this profound imbalance of contractual economic and market power to see how it affects people who invest their life savings in a franchise opportunity? And one of the takeaways in Australia was that the joint parliamentary committee found that pre-sale disclosure alone was an insufficient regulatory response to opportunistic and exploitative behaviors by franchisors. And the Japan Fair Trade Commission, you know, went in a similar direction uh, growing out of this major dispute in Japan over whether 7-Eleven franchisees have to be open 24 hours, even when they can't find employees and it's dangerous and not profitable uh, to do so. Mm -hmm. Keith, I'm going to direct this to you. I mean, if FDDs that these franchises have to compile are extremely extensive. They're pretty large uh, documents. They they have to be filed. There is an entire legal, um, uh, uh, an entire legal industry that you know helps companies meet these regulations. That uh, you know files lawsuits and you know large numbers of lawsuits have been filed against large numbers of franchising. Doesn't that sort of operate as sort of an enforcement tool? Because you know if you're a bad franchiser, you could get sued out of existence, theoretically? Well, absolutely not. You know, it's crazy and kind of to piggyback on your last question, Eric, I mean, it's crazy that the person who's the primary investor in an industry 
has almost no protection. You know, most laws with corporations protect the shareholders, uh, the investors in that corporation, yet the investors in these franchise corporations are not shareholders or stakeholders and have little protection by the law. You, you stated on file the FDD. That itself is actually a false statement. You do not have to file an FDD with the FTC. They not only don't review them, they don't even collect them. So you can have a franchise that stays outside of a registration state, theoretically selling franchises without an FDD. Then the next uh, comment you made is, then wouldn't they be afraid to be sued? Well, we know the, uh, the FTC has taken little or no action, literally in decades, uh, against bad franchisors. So what's the risk? And specifically, you don't have a private right of action on violations of the franchise rule Again, unless you're in a registration state or one that does allow it, but federally, you have no private right of action over uh, anything incorrect in the FDD or not having an FDD unless you can prove fraud, which is a high bar to cross. Eric, how many states actually do anything to regulate franchises? Well, their regulations exist at two levels. Uh, One is on the disclosure side, and we have a minority of states that have a franchise disclosure regime. Some require filing, some require just notice, some require approval. Some states are pretty active, but again, they have limited resources. States like California, Washington, Illinois, Maryland, and New York have particularly robust uh, resources on the disclosure side. Then there is another minority of states that have franchise relationship laws of the kind that we've been discussing here. California has a very robust one, relatively speaking, Washington, Iowa, and other states. But these are a minority of states. And the odd part about this is is that these franchise systems operate nationally, yet we have this patchwork, this patchwork quilt of inconsistent laws from state to state to state. In the context of franchise systems, the larger ones operate in all 50 states. It makes no sense to have the franchisee have materially different rights if they happen to be in Iowa as opposed to if they happen to be in Nebraska, for example. So we really feel that it's time to take a federalized, nationalized look at a business which is truly national in scope, indeed, in many cases, international in scope. Right. Well, the the industry argues about how huge it is, and yet, like I say, zero... I mean, really, not, nothing's been happening in the last decades. <laughs> right, right. One, uh, I guess one, uh, I'll, uh, I'll give you guys an example. Uh, you might have heard of this company, Burgerim. If you're listening and you haven't heard of it, it is a probably, arguably the worst franchise fraud on record. Um, I think we're pretty safe to say that it's basically it was uh, operated as a Ponzi scheme, left hundreds of people without their... Uh, initial investment left probably two, three hundred people uh, absolutely struggling to operate stores. A lot of them, most of them, if they did get open, ended up closing. I talked to multiple people that have lost homes uh, trying to keep their stores afloat. And it was just hammered by the state of California with a very substantial uh, penalty that'll probably never get paid. When I was looking at that uh, situation, guys, you know, it, you know, they had like a lot of people, and you mentioned there were 
you know, you say that franchising is national in scope and they were very intent on selling these things in as many states as humanly possible. So obviously they went to the registration states and submitted their FDDs for uh, review. One state went back at them with a question. That was Minnesota. They never responded to Minnesota's response. So in Minnesota, they actually never tried to sell any franchises. And the result of that is in the state of Minnesota. And I happen to know the um, quite well the, uh, the, 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 the PR person for the agency that regulates franchising in Minnesota. And I told him, you guys probably saved a lot of people, a lot of money in the state of Minnesota by basically just coming back at them with this question because there were issues with their FDD if you took a look at it. Any person with half a brain actually could have taken a look at it and said, wait a minute, this company is related to that company. Why isn't this company on the FDD on this one? So, I mean, I guess that's a, I mean, that probably proves a point that with just some even basic, uh, basic questions about these franchising documents, you could probably stop some pretty significant problems. Well, I think part of the problem is that these franchise disclosure documents are so big there. I mean, there are many franchise disclosure documents we see now that exceed 500 pages. And this presents a problem not only for the prospective franchisee, which may who may or may not have a college degree or may not even have English as their first language, but it also presents to the question you're asking a challenge for the franchise regulators because it's very difficult for them to plow through these documents. I have actually been on the North American Securities Administrators Franchise Project Group for 26 years. And one of the things we do is help train these folks to spot the kind of problems that you're talking about. But it's very, very challenging because most prospective franchisees and sometimes their lawyers, if they're not franchise lawyers, find these documents impenetrable. <laughs> so, you know, and, and the disclosure document itself does not present, prevent the, the abuses that happen after the agreement is signed. But this is one of the reasons that we have made it a, a proposal that the FTC consider a summary franchise disclosure document similar to the one that's been used in the mutual fund industry for many, many years, and to bring the FDD into the 21st century by allowing people to jump from the summary to the main document and from the main document disclosure items to the franchise agreement, because that's the way people actually read documents today. So we're trying to pull the FTC into the 21st century on a number of levels the nature, the quality, the readability, the penetrability of the FDD being just one of them. Mm -hmm. Well, I think one of the big issues is besides, I mean, the manpower, they're just, like you said, so big to get it. But this industry is built so much on selling franchises, sell, sell, sell. And there's absolutely no regulation, no requirement. If I want to be a franchise broker, all I have to do is call myself one and I can put it on a business card. And so you have these people selling, selling, selling. They have no fiduciary responsibility to the franchisee who they claim they're working for, which is a hard claim since they get paid by the franchisor. But uh, I think one of my better quotes of all time was the problem with this industry is far too many people profit from the sale of a franchise far too few, if any, are ever held accountable for the success of that sale of that franchise. And, you know, we just have too many people unregulated selling franchises with no obligation. Many franchises use, you know, third-party brokers or consultants to sell 
their brands because that puts them at an arm's length and often they can violate in a sense the franchise rule because they're not part of the franchise and get away with it and and like you said the technical legal part of it makes it very hard even if you know in a sense you've been screwed it's very hard to take any action and do anything about it uh, just financially or uh, technically being able to break through right right it's it's very difficult if i wanted to buy a franchise it's actually quite difficult to really get a good sense of what that franchise is about without you know and you really have to I mean, I think the issue that with Bergerham in particular, and, and you see this situation, I think, in a lot of these younger, high growth, sell at all cost type franchises, and we've seen many of them over the years, where, you know, they end up targeting, and Bergerham did this very deliberately, they end up targeting less sophisticated people and targeted them with an, with an idea that was, you know, they said was easy to operate. Uh, their salespeople, to Keith's point, walked all over franchise regulations. Frankly, if it was if they were selling stock, these guys would be in jail without any question. Not that the SEC actually does a great job of enforcing its own rules, but the fact of the matter is that th these guys were so blatant about some of their violations that that you know they would have they if they were selling stock, they would have ended up in jail pretty fast. And uh, yet, you know, they not only did that and it gets done in a lot of other franchises as well but they you know many of them did actually go on to other jobs and stuff like that and are continuing to operate in this industry we see a lot of people who um operate a badly failed franchise uh, that was was a blatant problem and then they move on to something else it just seems like there's little really ever done to stop these sorts of things from continuing to happen over and over and over again that's one of the reasons we created this petition. We need to shine the light of day on what's actually going on out in franchising. And I think that by and large, legislators, both at the federal and state level, are really unaware of what goes on behind the scenes, particularly the kind of abuses that you're talking about. And I think that having this investigation, getting the facts out in the open is just a really important first step. Mm -hmm. uh, we saw a petition a few years ago from the SEIU. Why is this different uh, or is it different? Well, it's different in part because, first of all, Keith and I did a much deeper dive into the problems. We created requests for information in a much, much broader categories, in much, much broader categories of information. I think that the SEIU petition had if memory serves, about 10 requests for information centered pretty much pretty on termination of franchises. But we felt like it was important to take a much broader look. One example of that is supply chain. Mm -hmm. There are many franchise systems that treat their franchisees as captive customers to sell goods and services to, to them to a markup that is essentially undisclosed and is a disguised royalty. There are some franchise systems that have taken this to a high art, uh, taking hundreds of millions of dollars, in some cases, billions of dollars out of the supply chain. And the vendors, as you know, Jonathan, are not charitable enterprises. If they pay the franchisor all that money, it's going to come out in the cost of the goods to franchisees. As a matter of fact, in the Queen City Pizza case, which involved the Domino's exclusive sourcing restrictions years ago, the court pointed out that the Domino's restrictions cost each franchisee about $10,000 a year. 
that came right off their bottom line. The hmm. purchasing power of a franchise network should be used to benefit the franchisees. The franchisor should make its money on royalties, which are contingent upon growth in sales. That's where the rising tide should carry both boats. And I think yeah, one of the big reasons why this is different is just you know the timing and the awareness that has happened since then. Uh, you know, we had the Cortez Master Report come out in April. You know, talking about many of the abuses in franchising, and a high percentage of the nine on the petition are listed in that report. That report specifically called for more funding and oversight by the FTC. Then in June, Representative Schakowsky, who chairs the subcommittee that oversees the FTC, sent a letter requesting the Government Accountability Office to do a study into the inadequacies of the franchise rule and, in a sense, into the inadequacies of the FTC uh, oversight of the franchise rule. That study is currently in process. Uh, and then she also called for a private right of action that she'll be soon introducing a bill. So there's been a lot more out there in the last year. And then we also have an FTC with uh, Commissioner Chopra becoming, in a sense, an activist within the FTC on the franchise issue. Rebecca Slaughter, who was acting chair for a while, uh, Commissioner, also has been active. And then new chair Lena Khan has been very active calling for investigations into the fuel franchises and how the pricing uh, structures there impact the convenience stores and how they're profiting. And also, for example, the, uh, the McBroken McIce cream machines uh, <laughs> with the right to repair. So franchises seems to be a top of mind of the FTC, which it hasn't even been high enough to be bottom of mind for the last mm -hmm. 20 years. Right, right. I'd, I'd, I'd amend that, friendly amendment. I'd say 30 years, Keith. Wow. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm older than you, buddy. <laughs> you, you, you mentioned supply chain issues. And uh, just this week, uh, just late last week, I wrote a story on collapsing sandwich chains. Keith, you might be familiar with this a little bit. And one of them, obviously, was Quiznos. Mm. And, you know, you know, obviously, I think that, the, the, you know, the, the, the downfall of Quiznos is there's a, there was a lot there. But the fundamental issue in that chain was they had high supply chain costs. Their food costs were higher than everybody else's. And they were small scale operators. I mean, and then they were built too close together. Da, 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 da. And then, you know, once everybody started buying $5 subs that, you know, Quiznos collapsed and it basically hasn't recovered since then. So it's not, so these supply chain issues really can, you know, and the, the result of, of that, of course, is that you've had like approximately 4,300 stores that have closed in the last decade. All of these, most of these are small scale franchisees who basically lost whatever life savings that they had put into the business. Um, so it's not like this doesn't have some real, so it definitely has some real world problems and can have a very significant issue on, on an entire company. There's one other topic I wanted to ask you about. In the petition, you mentioned non-disclosure requirements in the franchise agreement, which I find particularly problematic. And part of me is I'm a journalist and I think everybody should disclose everything because it makes my job a lot easier. But that one seems particularly problematic because you have these 
non-disparagement clauses. You, you guys know what I'm talking about. But yes. um, that seems particularly problematic, not simply because you get situations where, where you get a couple of franchisees that start raising concerns about a franchise, uh, you know, take it public and then end up getting terminated, which we do see. That also seems like it damages the entire process of investigating a franchise, uh, which I'm sure you guys can talk talk about. Eric, how common are these non-disparagement clauses and what kind of problems do they cause? They're very common. And I would say that they could be paired up with the general atmosphere of intimidation um, within franchise systems. I cannot tell you how many times I've seen franchisees that are afraid of their franchise or if they raise their hand, if a prospective franchisee comes to see them and they tell the truth about what their experience has been, they are so afraid that they're going to be retaliated against because they can be subject to inspections and audits and all kinds of oversight um, and make their lives very, very difficult. So I think that it also undermines, as I think you were alluding to, the idea that behind the FDD itself is the notion that a prospective franchisee should be able to do some due diligence before they make the investment. Mm -hmm. And one element of that due diligence is going to talking to franchisees who are already in the system and asking them questions about what their life is like, like a franchisee. Prospective franchisees that come to me, I actually give them a list of 10 questions they should ask. The most prominent question is what I call the would you marry me again question, which mm -hmm. is if you had it to do all over again, would you buy this franchise? It's a very telling subjective question. A related question is, would you recommend this franchise investment to a close friend or a relative? And I think mm -hmm. the non-disparagement and uh, gag clauses, as the FTC has called them in the past, undermine the whole notion of uh, due diligence by a prospective franchisee. Keith. I mean, and they, they don't even get called non-disparagement in a lot of ways. Uh, as Eric said, first of all, even if you don't have one, the intimidation of tougher inspections is always a threat. But I'm finding more and more that cutely worded around something like, at our sole discretion, if we feel you've done anything that negatively impacts the brand or the marks, we can terminate you, which is pretty broad at their sole discretion. Uh, you know, what, if I sell one bad sandwich, does that negatively impact the brand and set me up for termination? So, I mean, I'm pretty sure under the current, many current non-disparagement agreements, my name could not be on this petition. Right. Super, gentlemen, this was fantastic. Really appreciate you uh, joining me this week on the podcast. Thank you for the opportunity. Great to be with you. Thank you, Josh. And that should do it for this week's episode of A Deeper Dive, which was edited, as always, by Kimberly Kazmarek. Artwork by Nico Hines. You may find this and other episodes of the podcast on our website at www.restaurantbusinessonline.com backslash article backslash deeper dash dive. You may also find them on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your fancy listening shows. I'm Jonathan Mays, your host, podcast producer, and the editor-in-chief of Restaurant Business. Thank you for listening.